today's scripture is from Revelations chapter 21, verse 22 to chapter 22, verse 5. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. We are in part 16 of our series. I had hoped this would be the final one but I kind of suspected we may need one more, and so we are going to have one more. Um, last, week, last week was a particularly painful sermon. It was really painful for me in so many ways to give. And, um, and I don't think I could have preached that sermon except that there's the gospel, that there's a hope, and that hope is a very sure hope. And I want to talk today... Um, you know, these, these last three, well, that was kind of, these, that was the first of this one and, and these and the next one next week is kind of a wrap-up. And last week I talked about um, not being not captive to ideology. Do not be captive to the love of our own wisdom. And that's, that's basically what's happening in our society. That we're captive to kind of a certain American secular ideology and um, I want to kind of continue into that because it's so deep. It's probably a lot deeper than you even think. And in some ways, this is, a, this is also, I don't think it will be as painful as last week, um, but it's a painful sermon still because I really tremendously love America. And this is a sermon about America. And it's a kind of message that maybe you're not used to hearing. And it's really not a message that will really quite apply to the other nations, because America is built upon a very special dream, and I don't know if you understand this, but it's built upon a dream from the Bible, <laughs> okay? It's built on a dream from the Bible. Can you say that China is built as a nation, as a culture, on a dream from the Bible? There is, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, my answers come from Korea. Let me assure you, Koreans do not have a culture whose meaning of their nationhood is built on a dream from the Bible. But America does. And it's actually right at the center of a lot of the problems in the way we think about justice. And America has a huge, you know, we're fighting very much about this understanding of justice. And this new, what I'm calling a postmodern understanding of justice, it's really a post-Christian understanding of justice, is starting to kind of like rain into America. And it's much more, um, it's very, 
It's very different than the kinds of understanding of justice that was in the past. And it really has to do with very much the meaning of America. And so, um, let's get into it today. I'm entitled this message, Justice in America. Justice in America. You know, we are, we are a church. Uh, uh, before Revive was planted, I, I, I sat down with the pastor who is in, who's, who's sort of the lead pastor inside of our presbytery and our denomination, who's at, at the time um, of the committee that oversees church plants. Um, he's black. He's the only black pastor in our presbytery. And we got together at Applebee's actually. And we sat and had a long talk for about three hours. And I was trying to describe our church. You know what kind of did it for him? I said, we're an American church, but we're not white. That's why I said it, right? We're an American church, but we're not white. And he was like, oh, because I think in his mind, he's like, you're more Asian or you're more Korean or like, he was trying to get a picture in his mind. What kind of church is this? And as soon as I said, we're an American church, but we're not white, he was like, ah, I get that (laughs) because we're American because he's, you know, his church is, you know, predominantly black but they're not white. And you can immediately see, you know, the relevance. Every church is proclaiming the gospel for its culture. Ours is an American culture, okay? I think sometimes people see somebody whose face looks like mine and thinks that's not an American church. Let me, let me, let me really push back. If that's how you think, you're wrong. This is a very American church. And we love our country, and we love our city. And we love the Americanness of our country and of our city. And we truly long for real justice in our country, in our culture, and in our city. And real justice has to come from God. And, but America longs for justice too. Every nation really does, because we're made in the image of God. You can't help it. Okay, it's like Iranians, they're, I don't know if you know this, but there's, like, there's a big fight going on in Iran over their culture. It's a fight about justice. It's a fight about freedom. You know? But the way they think about justice is not like the way we do. And what I want to offer you is this thesis before I get into today's message. Nobody has ever had the highest understanding of justice for their nationhood higher than America. Let me just say that. I think if you look at all the history of all the nations, of all of, you know, of, of all of the history of history that we know, no nation has ever had a higher dream of justice than our country. And you know where they get that vision from? From the Bible. Okay? So, let's get into it. Part one. Post-Christian America and the trap of secular Phariseeism. Let me unpack that a bit. Post-Christian America and the trap of our version of secular, what I'm going to call secular Phariseeism, right? Part two, identity politics and the new scapegoat of secular postmodern justice. I'm going to talk about identity politics. And because it's deeply related to the way America, in its postmodern, its post-Christian form, is talking about justice. 
right? It's right in there. Identity politics, uh, critical race theory, postmodern justice, neo-Marxist justice. It's all, it's all of one thing. It's not, those aren't exactly all the same meanings, but it's all of one thing, okay? And then part three, the lamp of the Lamb of God healing the nations. Oh, wow, do we need that? That's what it says in the Bible. And uh, most people don't ever think about this, but now we're talking about justice. We need the lamp, the Lamb of God, to heal the nations, okay? So, let's get into the text first. I'm going to write to the text first. And I want to read through this text a bit. Revelation chapter 21, um, verse 22, through the beginning portion of chapter, I mean, of uh, verse 21, 22, to the beginning verses of chapter 22. For those of you who don't know, this is the end of the Bible. It's not the very, very end of the Bible, but it's close. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, 22 chapters, so this is close to the end. And this is the vision that, by which the Bible closes. It's absolutely, it's absolutely magnificent. It's incredible. And so let me... Um, let me read this, and then I want to offer some little bit of commentary on this as we go to help you see the, the relevance and power of this passage, okay? Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. This is the city of God, okay? And in the Bible, it talks about the city is the final vision of heaven, okay? Sorry for those of you who like rural and farms, okay? The urban is the final vision of heaven. And we're not just talking about city with big buildings. We're talking about city as the symbol of civilization, of human life flourishing on the earth. And that city is called the New Jerusalem. The capital of God's peoplehood is Jerusalem, and it's the New Jerusalem. And the great, uh, the great Christian theologian Augustine called this the city of God. So this is what we're describing. It's a description of what Augustine called the city of God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So let me just say a little something about this. What does that matter? Oh, it, it's really important, actually. Every peoplehood, whatever's most important to them, they build the most important building in, the, in their most important cities. And every society ever, whatever's most important to them, they build a temple. It's usually quite religious. And so um, we're like, well, I'm not very religious. So, but you, we still do it. Every city builds temples to what's big and important to them. In New York City, we build like these great tall buildings that are temples to money. <laughs> That's what it is, right? If you go to Washington, D.C., you have these buildings, the Capitol, or um, you, ever been to the, uh, you ever been to the Lincoln Memorial? I've been to the Lincoln Memorial. You walk in there, you walk into the middle of the Lincoln Memorial, and if you don't think it's a temple, you're crazy. It's a temple. <laughs> it is a temple unto liberty. Because in our city, that's our capital city, what we worship what we tremendously value, we build temples to. And of course, some cities, you know, the, the, the greatest temple is like a football stadium or something like that, okay? So, uh, but we build temples. 
and all throughout the ancient world and all throughout, you know, whatever their great things are. And now today, when you go to foreign countries and you go to their cities, you visit their temples. <laughs> That's what you do, right? And you're going, oh, this, this civilization was built on this. And so you go to like a, a grand Buddhist temple and it's glorious and you can see they spent a lot of money on that. They spent a lot of manpower on that. They, some people literally might have died to build that building. But it's incredible here. There is no temple in this city. Why? Because you could just see the glory. We don't need no building. So the temple, the temple is God himself and the lamb. It's important. It says that the, the verses, it's the lamb. Let's go to verse, let's continue. Verse 23, and the city, the city of God, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Everybody walks by whatever light you see. Everybody does that. So the American light, at least historically, is liberty. That's, 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 the, that's why we build the temple in Washington, D.C., the liberty. So... If you go to some other countries, that's not the light by which they walk. I know you can go to certain cities and you wonder if they really believe in liberty. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not being, I hope I don't think I'm being insulting when I say that in, uh, in New York, you know, their temple is to money. Come on, let's get real. It's money. <laughs> All right? And so, you know, the light by which they walk in New York City, you know, there's this phrase, you know, you know, um, money talks and BS walks. Like, that's like New Yorkers love that phrase. So where does the money come from? Everything else is BS. That's the light. You see it? That's, that's the way they assess what, if, if what you're saying is genuine, if what you're saying has any worth. So they have a light, money. Money tells you if this person is full of it or not. It's lying. But you go to Washington, D.C., and if you go around saying, you know, money talks, BS walks in, the, in Washington, D.C., they probably won't like you. It's a different light. Every nation cares what light, and that light is the glory. See? But there will be a day when all the nations, all the nations will walk by the light of the Lamb of God. And let me just say a little something about this. Um, we're talking about, I said to you, the, at the very, very beginning of this sermon series, justice is an eternal attribute of God himself. It's an eternal attribute of God himself. Justice is, is going to be in that light. If God is the glory and he is, we don't need a temple because we just see his light, then you know one of the things that we're going to see, and one of the most fundamental attributes is justice. We will see justice. We'll just get it. The light of true justice will shine into our minds, and all the nations will walk by it. Now, God's glory and light is more than justice. There's truth. There's beauty. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. There's all kinds of other great glories of God but his light will shine upon all the nations, but absolutely, there'll be justice. And by the true justice 
by the light of true justice, all the nations will finally one day walk. Instead of fighting about English justice versus French justice, instead of Chinese justice against Japanese justice, instead of black American justice versus white American justice, or red state justice versus blue state justice, God's justice is how all the nations will walk. So, by its light will the nations walk. Verse 24, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. So let's just say a little something about this. The kings of the nations will bring all their glory. You know what this is saying? Every nation has some kind of glory and it's not the same. All the leaders lead their people into their glory. One of the glories of America is liberty. I, I dare say that America is better at liberty than other nations. I think that's just simply true. That's just the truth. We're better at it than other nations. It's part of our glory. But guess what? Other nations are better at other things. And they'll bring their glory. And they'll bring their glory. And so, I'm going to say, if I remember to say this, one of the things that's said in, in America today is every nation has to be equal. Every ethnicity, every race has to be equal. And by equal, we mean the same. Okay? These people have the same income. These people have the same income. Okay? They, these people have the same number of people going to college. These, okay? Same number of people going to college. Same number of people running as CEO. These, okay, okay? The white people have to have the same number of CEOs as the black people. That's not how the Bible looks at it. The Bible is okay with different nations having different glories. And you know what that means? It's unequal. <laughs> if you think equal means the same, the Bible is, does not agree. There's an inequality of glories in the world. Isn't that just a plain fact? And that's the way it's going to be in eternity. In the ultimate seat of God, different nations will have their different leaders and they'll have different glories some will be better at some glories and some will be better at other glories. And nobody will be ashamed and nobody will be covetous and nobody will be resentful. And nobody will be racist because the light of Jesus. Because everything will, every, all nations will be healed. And here's this other incredible thing. The, the gates won't be shut. The gates won't be shut. You know what the gates were for? In, 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 in all ancient cities, the gates were this. Those people over there are, are violent and wicked and they hate our guts and we hate the way they live. The gates are up, so they're out. Those people over there are out. And then there's a set of people, sometimes every now and then we have somebody in our city who sins against our glory, who's so guilty and who's, so, who's brought such a horrible stain upon us that if we allow him or her to continue to live inside of our city, they're staining and making our city polluted with their defilement. So we have to kick them outside of the city, outside of the gate. See it? That's what it's for. But the Bible says there will finally be a day when there'll be no more gates. And there won't even be a night. You know why there's no night? Because the light is on all the time. That's why. The light of the lamp of God is on all the time.
Okay. Um, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Verse 26. They will bring it into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb's book of life. So let me just say a little something about this and we have to move on. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So let me put it this way. No longer will we look at fatherless kids and ignore them, exploit them, enslave them. No longer will women be raped or harassed or sold off or prostituted. No longer will there be vulnerable women who feel like, I just got to have a man or, or I'm all alone and I'm utterly vulnerable in the world. No longer will anything like that be the case. And no longer will we look at other people and just size them up by their skin color and go, oh, those people outside the gate. <laughs> we got to put those people outside the gate and exclude them out of some form of unjust exclusion. And instead, all the nations will love each other, no gates. And they will love each other and they'll be neighbors and they will love the sojourner, just as the Bible says. They will love the minority. I don't, I don't even know if you can even call them a minority because they'll all be citizens as themselves. Okay. That's the Bible. Isn't that incredible? Now let me say something else. America wants us bad. You know what America was built for? This. America was built to be a nation to have this, to seek this. Um, you're like, really? Really. This is actually the theology of America. It's really deep. So, I don't know if you've, I know civics is taught so badly in America today, so it's kind of strange. I feel like I'm giving a basic civics lesson. But let me, let me offer this to you. There was a, have you ever heard of a guy named John Winthrop? Any of you ever heard of this guy named John Winthrop? John Winthrop became the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he came over in a boat. And he was one of the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that boat he came in, was in 1630. And he's famous for this phrase. He gave this message. It's basically a sermon. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. That was a dream. Right? The name of the boat was called the Arbella. And the people that came called themselves the Puritans. They were deeply, they were deeply, deeply religious. They were devout people. You know, they were, they were Christians. They had thick and deep theology. And they wanted to build a very, very Christian nation built on this. That's what they mean by city. And you know, if you think, well, that was 1630. That was probably a long time ago. It's gone, right? No, 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 no. It, it just doesn't go away. Do you know, you can go find speeches of Abraham Lincoln. This is how he talks. 
I, I dare you to go onto YouTube and listen to like Martin Luther King Jr. And listen to how he thinks about America and its justice. And I dare you to think, and then just hear Revelation 21. It's there. It's there. And when he's up there giving these speeches, and let me tell you something, we call them speeches, but they're sermons. Martin Luther King Jr., he's given sermons. Because, you know, the people don't go to church. They don't want to call them sermons. They call them speeches, but they're sermons. They're sermons, and they're rife with Revelation 21 and 22, what I just taught you. Um, there was a, the, the, there's a president that some of you don't remember because you're a little too young. His name was Ronald Reagan. This is how he talked about America. He says, we're a city on a hill. Those Soviet communists over there and their atheistic society where they murder people left and right, where there's no liberty, they're built on tyranny. We're the city on a hill. That's how Ronald Reagan talked. And that's how Ronald Reagan led America to defeat communism. Basically through Revelation 21 and 22. So, now, this is how America thinks. You know, it just keeps coming up again and again. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a, a famous writer, best-selling author, his name is David Brooks. David Brooks likes to talk about America as the eschatological nation. I know it's a big vocabulary. Eschatology means the study of the final ultimate things. This is the final ultimate thing. You know what America's built on? The final ultimate thing. The final ultimate dream and city. That's the kind of nation this was intended to be. See what I mean? By America was built on the highest justice ever. Other countries don't think like that. They're like, it's China. The China is the, is the middle kingdom. The middle kingdom, in, in Asian thought, the center is the, is, is the most important. They're the central kingdom. When we're at the center of the whole world, the world would be great because it's a Chinese-centric. When the Chinese glory reigns, then the world is what's important. So every other nation, this is really typical. Our nation has to be great. And of course, we in America, we like it to be like, we're the greatest nation in the world, blah, blah, blah. So it's common. But really, the deeper vision was a, is a very deeply Christian vision. And I want to say something else is this. This Christian vision, it's kind of like America doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. <laughs> but it can't get rid of this. It can't get rid of this dream. So what we have is, we have essentially a Christian vision, Christian longing, an ultimate longing for all nations with tremendous justice where we do not exclude people on the base of race or poverty or ethnicity. And yet, America can't do it. We just can't do it. And so, instead... So lately, we're getting so impatient now, something new is arising. There's a latest American version of trying to do this, and it's called justice. And what I want to say to you, it's a kind of new American religion, which is politicized. And 
this term social justice. See, you know, years ago, social justice meant liberal justice. And liberal justice was a secular version of something more compatible to this American dream. It was more compatible to the Bible. That's why you could have someone who is kind of like more theologically liberal and goes to church. So to a person who's more theologically conservative and goes to church. And then they can get together with somebody who's Jewish and maybe doesn't even go to synagogue and hangs out with somebody who's atheist and, of course, doesn't believe in going to synagogue or church, but they all believed in liberal understanding of justice and those people can get together because they all saw themselves as American. And they were all going to build this type of society. And this is liberal justice. But today that's being replaced. That, that kind of theology of America is being replaced with the postmodern, the darker, impatient, illiberal, intolerant, is trying to shut up anybody who even asks a question about it. You don't even, you know, you guys know this even better than I do. In your company, when they have this training, this diversity training, which is essentially diversity religious indoctrination, you don't even, if you, you, you're not even going to say, I disagree with this. You just want to ask a question. Like, how, how exactly does this work? And you know, you start thinking twice. You're like, I don't think I should ask that question because I'll get in trouble. This is where we're going. It's like this in universities, in our companies, on social media. So, um, it's so interesting the way we're moving today. Um, I, I quoted from you this, uh, this amazing book called Dominion by Tom Holland. <laughs> he's this guy who lives in England. I think he's American. He's not a Christian. And he's saying that Christianity came into the West and has incredible influence. The last two, I finally finished reading this book. You know what the last two chapters of this book are? One is, the second to last chapter is called Love. And you know what he's saying? The Beatles sing the song, All You Need Is Love. You know that song? He says, that's Christian. <laughs> that's what he's saying because of course it's not a Christian song it's built on the dream of a Christian song of Christian idea this you know that song by John Lennon Imagine he's saying that's a secular version of a Christian dream it's a secularized religious vision of a Christian dream the last chapter of Dominion by Tom Holland you know what it's entitled it's called Woke so when Tom Holland looks at America, you know what he's saying? The woke understanding of justice is just an American adaptation. Getting rid of the Jesus part, but still trying to keep Revelation 21. That's what he's saying. So here's the way I want to uh, just say this part. Today our society is run by a new kind of Puritanism. We want to be pure. It's led, it's, it's led by a new kind of Pharisee. Except the Pharisees aren't Christians. And they're not like the old kind of Pharisees. You know, the Puritans. John Winthrop is kind of like a Pharisee, a Puritan, Christian Pharisee, 1630s version. And of course, in the Bible, the Pharisees were Jewish. But... Today's kind of Pharisee, it's a secular Pharisee. And the very center, the linchpin of their new kind of worldview is justice. 
It's social justice. Okay? Now let's go to part two. Part two. Let me say a little something about identity politics, okay? Identity politics. Um, you know, we are... Um, oh, darn it. Can I ask a, my wife to bring me that book? <laughs> All right. I didn't bring it up here. I got to share with you something out of this book. Thank you. We live in a, we live in a time, and, I, and I, I talked a little bit about this last week. We're trying very, very mightily to conquer the guilt of America's past. Racism. It is a sin against justice that some people, because of their skin color, would be excluded and turned into second-class citizens. And America is mightily trying to conquer this sin and the guilt on it. But we could feel this guilt stays and we can't get over it. And the latest attempt to get over it is identity politics. But um, it's never going to work. Because you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political answer. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use a political answer for what is essentially a spiritual moral problem. Guilt is a stain on our soul. And if there's a stain and of, on our soul, you know what? The Bible says you owe something. You owe a debt. And um, I want to I wanna offer something to you from this. I've been reading this book. I just started this book. I found, I, I found that about this guy a few months ago. And um, this might become, I think, might be one of the most important books of our time. It's Joshua Mitchell. Okay, it's Joshua Mitchell. You probably can't see it on the video, but try. And the book is called American Awakening, Identity Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Who is Joshua Mitchell? He is a professor of political theory at Georgetown University. He's a big shot. And he's an expert on um, you know, political philosophy. But you know what I think is really impressive about him? He understands theology. He studied some theology. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's a Christian. And um, I want to take you to something he said. All right? He has this view that in America... He just explained something which I think is just, everybody in our second discourse, they never think about this or talk about this, but it's going on all the time. He says in America, we have the economy of money. Who, you know, like we trade goods. You know, is Google doing better? You know, every day, the, 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 the goods that we're trading, and it's very visible, the economy of money. That's the normal economy that we're interested in. But he says, there's this other economy going on he calls it a mysterious, invisible economy of transgressions and innocence. That's what he calls it. The mysterious, invisible economy of transgressions and innocence. You know what he's talking about. He's talking about guilt. He's talking about the debt. What do we owe? Because we have been transgressors against justice through race, racism, and exclusions. So he says something like this. This book is concerned, 
with the deeply deformed relationship between identity politics and Protestant Christianity. You know what he's saying? Identity politics is like a heretical deformation of Christianity. Wow. I think he's right on. Surveys indicate that Americans have lost or are losing their religion. However, the fever, that's what he calls it, the fever of identity politics suggests that these surveys are wrong. That's what he's saying. And they're asking the wrong questions and looking in the wrong places. You know what he's saying? Americans have not lost their religion. Americans are very religious. They just have located their religion into politics. That's what he's saying. We don't do our religion known in these buildings called churches anymore. We do our religion today in the fever of our politics. And we do it through something like identity politics. That's what he's saying. <laughs> do we have this thing called the institutional separation of church and state? We still basically have that. Churches can't get in there and then start you know, wielding power. Churches have like almost no power in, in, the, in, 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 our, uh, in, in our governance. But, he says, the separation of religion and politics, that's collapsed. That's what he's saying. So now religion has become political and politics is religious. So, last summer, when I watched George Floyd a video of him dying with the white police officer's knee on the back of this poor black man's neck. I, I just, I had this sick feeling of horror rush all over me for so many reasons. And one of them was, I was like, I'm going to have to preach on this someday, very soon. And America's going to be like, what the heck are you doing? You're putting your religious theology and talking about politics. But let me say this to you. I didn't choose this. Okay? Our secular Pharisees chose to jam their religion into everybody's throat through politics. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, you can't just be thinking they're doing politics out there and now let's just go to church and just talk about our religion. No, 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 no. What we're dealing with with identity politics is a competing religion. It's very, very politicized, but it's, it's, it's a religion. It's telling you what you must do, what's right and wrong. It's telling you what, what justice looks like. It's giving you a competing vision of how they're going to get to Revelation 21. The secular people think they're going to get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Using what? Identity politics. It's never going to work. We believe that we need the light of the Lamb of God. It's a different religion. It's a different theology. Let me just offer you this one more um, thing which uh, Joshua Mitchell says. He has all these little nuggets, but i got to try to put it together so it doesn't go too long. He says this. Ide the identity politics of innocence. See, some people are innocent. Some people are transgressors. Of course, you all know who the innocent ones are and who all the transgressors are, right? Black, 
innocent, white transgressors. And then there's a gradation, which we call intersectionality. The closer you are to white, heterosexual, cisgender, Christian male, you're a transgressor. You got a lot of stain on you. The closer you are down the other scale, then you're innocent. And nobody wants the stain of oppression. So here's how he puts it. The identity politics of innocence has turned politics into a religious venue of sacrificial offering. Ponder for a moment the Christian understanding of sacrificial offering. So he, see, I told you he understands Christianity. Without the sacrifice of Christ, the innocent lamb of God, there would be no Christianity. 100% correct. Christ, the scapegoat, renders the impure pure. He just, he's like, he's explaining the gospel. Like you could, if you could assign this book in school, it's like, okay, well, this political, the, uh, the, uh, uh, political philosophy professor is explaining the gospel. He's exactly what he's doing. This scapegoat, Christ, he takes upon himself the sins of the world, just John chapter one. In purging the divine, in purging the divine scapegoat, those for whom he is the sacrificial offering are purified. But in identity politics, identity politics is a political version of this cleansing. See, they're looking for something spiritual, but they're trying to do something political. It's a political version of this cleansing. It's for groups, not for individuals. The scapegoat identity politics offers up for sacrifice. The scapegoat that identity politics offers up for sacrifice is the white heterosexual male. If all the stains are on that scapegoat, and we condemn that scapegoat and we kick him out and eliminate him and push him outside the gates of all these good innocent people inside the city, then we'll be pure and we can finally have justice and be happy forever, right? No. But that's the de facto theology of the post-Christian justice theory. If the white heterosexual man who is the scapegoat of identity politics is purged, all the people who believe in this imagine that the world itself, along with the remaining groups in it, will be cleansed of stain. That's where we're at, we are today. That's where we are today. So, it's taking 15 sermons I gave you 14 sermons so that you could know what the Bible says. And then I asked you, please arm yourself so that you won't have the ideology of our culture like wrapping your mind and like gluing itself to your mind so that you're trapped inside of your own mind. But today I'm taking it a step further by letting you know it's not just politics. It's not just ideology. It's an alternative competing theology. <laughs> its goal is very, very anti-Christian. 
And I want to just say this to you. If you have any temptation to think that if I'll just, just kind of be a little bit more woke, if I'll just be a little bit more woke, then, you know, they, they won't come after me, right? Let me tell you, as long as you decide you're going to be, believe in Jesus, you're never, ever going to be accepted inside the gates of identity politics. And anyone outside, and anyone else who's like, I'm not sure if I, I buy this. It's so intolerant that if you will not bow down and kneel to this doctrine, you'll be pushed outside the gates. This is where we're going. It's very, very oppressive. And very dangerous. And so, brothers and sisters, not just because we believe in Jesus, or not just for our own freedom, but for our neighbors. We must live inside of the light of the Lamb of God. Okay? Now let me close. I knew I was going to go long, so I'm going to read what I wrote, okay? I'm going to read what I wrote to this. You know, you know what we need? We need a better trust. There's so much distrust. We look at somebody else. A lot of people today don't understand that so many black Americans are so upset. And then there's a lot of white Americans or elite Americans who aren't even necessarily white and they're going to say, oh, we want to help you and then we're going to do this for you. We're going to do identity politics for you. Oh, this will, then, you know, then, then uh, we'll just say all oh, the white people are bad and you are good and then they'll, they'll make things better. But really, you see what that is? It's trying to cover up the guilt. It's wash away the stain. It's actually not practically loving black people, is it? Of course, it's certainly not trying to love the fatherless or the widows. It's just trying to cover up the guilt. And how can there be mutual trust and deeper peace if that's the way the nation is. This theology is going to build tremendous distrust and resentment, and it's going to destroy our, destroy our country. We're not going to get anywhere close to Revelation 21. In fact, we're going completely backwards. But what I want to offer you is something from the gospel and how the gospel... See, it, it, we... This, America is so impatient that we can get to Revelation 21 that we're looking for a simple answer, a cheap answer. If we just get the most powerful people and we just dump it on everybody, and like we just put their power upon it, we can force everybody to move in this direction, can't we solve this? No. It's a shortcut answer which is never going to be the answer. You cannot solve a deeply spiritual problem with a shortcut political answer. But if we get to the soul, the spiritual problem at the hearts of our soul, we can actually get to a real answer with real power. So let me say this, and uh, then we'll go to the table of the Lord, okay? Every nation is insecure. You know why? Because without any glory, we're, we're, we're nothing. See, that's why every nation cares about their glory, and then we build a temple to it. Every city goes, okay, we're going to build, you know, small towns 
nobody, you know, like, you know, like they, maybe, they, they, maybe they have a nice church in the middle because that's, what, you know, when they built it, their most important temple is going to be a church. But every city has to have a glory. Why? Because we're insecure. Insecurity longs for glory. A light of some kind of glory to fill up our own emptiness and our lack of worth. To make you and me worthy. To make us feel secure, not insecure. Whole nations and ethnicities do this, and each culture fixates on the light of a different glory. Each culture loves and is good at different things. You know, um, have you guys ever heard this joke? <laughs> I'm going to tell this joke. Heaven is where the English run the government, and the Germans in there are the engineers, and the French are the cooks. You ever heard this joke? But hell is where the Germans run the government <laughs> and the French are the engineers and the English are the cooks. I, I lived in England for about 12 weeks. Let me tell you, the food is not good, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Why? Because each nation is different, good at different things. And we love... Telling the other side, you're bad at this. We're better. Because we're so insecure. And it gets bad enough that sometimes we have to go to war against each other. The French and the Germans, they hate each other. They've killed each other for centuries. The English and the French, they kill each other. And they're all white. It has nothing to do with skin color. Okay. Without a deep security in our souls that moves into our very peoplehood and culture, how will we ever have the humility to admit our lack, even our sins? And then, how can we be glad that someone is better than us at something? You, not only should we be able to admit that they're better, we should be happy about it. <laughs> you, you get that? You should be happy about it. I, you know, I, I would love to meet someday when an English person sits down, eats Korean food, is like, dude, this food is better than our food. Because I'm sorry, Korean food's better, okay? <laughs> I, I think so. Not everybody thinks so. We can be glad in the inequality of glory because you are glad that they are better than you at this. That's what they will contribute to the feet of the Lord in the city of God. Only when our guilt and our shame is paid for and our debts are paid and we know it. See, we, don't, we no longer have a transgression in the economy that hasn't been paid for, the eternal economy. Only when the lamp of Jesus' glory, which is the glory of his humility, of his servanthood, of his atonement, which washes away all the cursedness, all our uncleanness, all our racism, all the ways we, when we look down on the fatherless, all the ways that we exploit the vulnerable women, all the ways that we exclude the ethnicities we don't understand or don't like. When the light of that glory, the light of that lamb fills us up, then we can embrace each other. 
And then we can constantly lift each other up. Instead of nations jockeying for who is better, who is greater, and thus to grasp after power, see, no longer nobody's going to care about power. And thus oppress, they will lift each other up and serve and offer their own gifts. They will offer their gifts which are truly glorious with pure humility, complete holiness of humility, radical generosity, zero envy, zero resentment, zero covetousness. Then we can truly embrace one another with no hidden agendas, no needy guilt that we expect that somebody else has to fix. Right now, like one portion of America needs the other side to like, can you fix my guilt? But only when the lamp of the lamb, we know that all our guilt is finally washed away. And then we will no longer feel broken and insecure, but we'll be deeply secure and utterly free in humility and with gladness living inside of true and eternal justice forever. There'll be something better than America. America longs for this. We can today offer something closer to it and help America take steps towards something like it. And maybe we'll need to pay the price. They'll have to hate us and exclude us, jail us. The Christians who were in Soviet, they had to die to show their neighbors there's something better than their tyranny and their justice. But if we hang on to the city of God this way and real justice, something great can come. Let's pray. Lord, as we go to your table, we desperately need to know that your body, your blood, has paid our debt has washed us and cleansed us from all our stains and all our transgressions. So as we go to your table, fill us with the hope of true justice. In all our performing and in all our wisdom, we fail and we break. But if our neighbors and ourselves, we can have this true great security through your grace, then we could know that as we eat of your bread and drink of your wine, as we take in your broken body, which was broken so that our brokenness can be healed, in this is the true promise and hope of the city of God. <laughs> Help us to believe this and repent. Both of our sins and of our self-righteousness. Help us to live not inside of Phariseeism, whether it's the Christian version or the secular version. Let us just live in the gospel. And thank you in Jesus' name.